Hello. The deadline for the Walk Awards for Effectiveness 2024 has been extended to the 12th of February, so you still have a few more days to enter your campaign into our celebration of strategic brilliance and effective impact. With 12 categories and 5 new regions, this is our biggest award show yet, and the great news is you just need to enter once for your chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, which will be announced during Cannes Lions Week. I'm John Bazell, Walks Awards Lead, and I don't want you to miss your chance to win a Global Walk Grand Prix. Imagine truly claiming your campaign is one of the most effective in the world. Head to walk.com now to submit your entry. The Walk Awards 2024. Strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the WARC podcast. My name is Rika Facundo, APAC editor, and I'll be your host today. Building and managing a brand is already a complicated feat in itself. What more if you have to do it across a portfolio of 36 brands, across five categories, and all distribution channels, price, and various types of customers? To make it even more complicated, what if you had to do this in the fast-growing markets in the world, across a fragmented region, and a digital landscape? The brand I'm referring to is L'Oreal, and joining me today to help make sense of all this complexity and provide best practice and insights is Lex Bradshaw-Zanger, Chief Marketing and Digital Officer at Sapmina L'Oreal. Welcome, Lex. How are you doing? Hi, Rick. I'm doing great. It's good to be with you. Awesome. So, Lex, I first want to paint the scene of what's changing in the beauty marketing landscape. I alluded to a lot of complexity, but... I want to start with one trend in particular I hear associated a lot with L'Oreal, which is beauty tech. What exactly is this trend and what are the key drivers behind it globally as well as in Sepmina? Why is this trend so important with how the brand is positioning in itself? What an amazing question. You've you've done your homework and you've jumped right in. I I don't know, you know, I'll I'll jump right in. I don't know that beauty tech is a trend. I think beauty tech is, is what we talk about in terms of how we're using technology to bring our brands to life. And obviously we're a pure player in beauty. Uh, We were 36 brands, now a recent acquisition of ESOP, so now 37 global brands. So the portfolio is getting bigger as we speak. Um, But beauty tech is really, how do we use data and technology to build experiences, either product experiences, service experiences, or communication experiences for our consumers? Probably the most outward facing of those was a company we acquired an, an AR and VR company back in 2018, a Canadian company called Modiface. And that's the technology that powers all of our services. And I'm sure we can talk more about that, but whether that's virtual try-on or skin analysis, you know, these are all core services. But you know, th- there are other things that, that are about how we engage with consumers online, how we offer services through COVID, how we really stepped up and started using our beauty advisors online. But then it's also everything that happens behind the scenes whether it's the technology to analyze people's faces and skincare, whether it's we're using data to think about the media mix. You know, there are so many ways that digital data tech, all of these things together are impacting marketing. So, and all of that is beauty tech. And so beauty tech is, is how we talk about building brands and bringing them to the consumer. Is there any difference between uh, the global markets and specifically in Sapmina and APAC? I'm a little bit biased here. Of course, I'm the APAC editor and I, you know, I'm always looking to my experts to help illustrate, you know, the, the dynamism and all the things that are happening here. Can you give us a little bit of insight into those differences? Definitely. You know, it's a super exciting region. You know, so maybe I'll start by saying, you know, I've been here for, for 10 months, I think. Uh, so I was... Uh, 
I was I started with the group in Paris. I was in the UK for the last four years, uh, four years during COVID, so it feels like forty. Um, and I came out spring spring of last year. But but ACAP is super exciting, and we're not even you know we're we're also Satmina, so that's only the southern part of Asia Pacific. But it's a super exciting region. There's lots of lots of differences here. You know, there's there's one. It's a younger consumer. Younger consumer is more dynamic, and then. As a result, more digital. So we'll talk a lot, I'm sure, about digital. But younger consumers are more digital, more mobile savvy, more trusting. But I think there's also a spin to Asia, which is that technology, probably driven a lot by China and some of the services, technology is started by being a service. You know, if we think about banking, we think about telcos, we think about transport. So many people are using technology as a service that they have this innate trust. I think if you look to the Western world, to Europe, to the US. Technology digital is much more dominated by a content and entertainment landscape, and so there's slightly less commerce there and, and slightly less trust. So there's so there's this this notion of where we're coming to from a platforms and technology place. The fact that our consumers, the population is younger. The fact then that there's more optimism. There's definitely more optimism in Asia than there is in the rest of the world. Makes this region completely dynamic. So so it's it's a super exciting place to be. You know, I'm I'm very excited to be here. And you know, my our, our Sapmina region is. Is Morocco all the way through to New Zealand? We have, we cover forty percent of the world's population. Some of the fastest growing markets in the world. You said it. The most dynamic, fast growing markets. Every single model of consumer engagement, digital technology, e-commerce, everything's happening here. I really resonate with what you said. I never heard someone pick out that nuance that technology in this part of the world is driven by service. So I'm from the Philippines, where there's a lot of problems, right? And that's why people are so excited by tech because it's. A service to help solve、um, the problems and create that experience,、um, and to make life、uh, a lot easier. And I'll touch a little bit later on about what that means about marketing and brand. But there's another thing I want to understand from a big picture point of view on what's changing, is that you know L'Oreal、um, operates a beauty portfolio at the intersection of FMCG and luxury. And we, you spoke a lot about technology. You know, technology has been there forever, right? But at least right now, with what you're seeing, what's possible now that wasn't before? What's the opportunity for our listeners here? The changes that technology and platforms and digital has brought is it's such a different way to build brands. If you think about how we built brands, not even ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you know, it was very dominated by TV and outdoor. Big one-way channels, not at all segmented, broad mass awareness, and suddenly today, the amount of contact points, messages that consumers get from so many different voices. You know, if we if we just talk about skincare, you know, skincare is an incredible category. You've got the brand talking to you. You've got your dermatologist talking to you. You've got celebrities and ambassadors and influencers. But you've got your mother and your aunt and your neighbour also talking about about home remedies. And so the way we build brands today has to take into account all of those different things, all of the different voices talking about the brands and the products, all of the different channels and how you interact with them. It's a much more complex environment. It's a much more exciting environment. If you if you like marketing, I'm a bit of a geek.、Uh, I like marketing and marketing science and strategy.、Uh, it's a super exciting place to be to build brands. We all know it's complicated, but how exactly do you build brands in this new age? And this is something that Wark looks into、uh, quite extensively because, like you rightly mentioned, brand building used to be associated with big TV ads, out of home, and digital was just being used for you know lower funnel, etc. But help me break that down and how how do you build brand within that construct? I guess thoughts. 
Sure. Um, let me think, because there's, there's so many different spaces, maybe four or five different things. So I talked, I'll start with the easy one. So I talked a little bit about services. You know, we've moved from a world where it's not just about communication straight to consumers, but starting to create experiences and engagement. And so we've built and developed, particularly through our Modiface services, but, but many others, a bunch of different services. So I think, you know, virtual try-on was probably the first, whether it was virtual try-on for makeup, for hair color, for nail varnish, all these things, that's a service that enables you to understand the product before you buy online and in store. So, you know, this is this is brand building because the service builds the brand at the same time before you purchase the product. So that's kind of a very first degree. Then we've taken those services into physical retail. So now if you go to our stores, many of our luxury brands have their own dedicated stores. Our consumer brands exist more in department stores and supermarkets. So there you've got physical services or you've got products that are augmented by technology. The amount of things you can do in store, if you look at a QR code on a, on a, on a panel in POS versus on a product. So, so we talk about augmented products now. Augmenting the product experience is really, really exciting. We've started to use technology, and this is probably more from a data point of view, to think about how we augment our marketers, augment our salespeople. We're a sales and marketing organization. Uh, augmented marketing is understanding big data, understanding what people are talking about, uh, thinking about the media mix. Uh, we can talk about measurement. You know, measurement's an incredible space. Where we've gone from bottom of the funnel to top of the funnel. Econometrics is back in fashion. Is ROI and ROAS the way to go? Um, so, so all of those things are, are using data and the same with our salespeople and, and now e-commerce. You know, e-commerce is all about data, understanding where people are buying. So there's so many places where beauty tech is inputting, either helping the marketer, helping the product, and all of this builds brands. Um, and, the, and the last piece, but it's probably not so much beauty tech, but it's where technology has a part to play, is about being responsible and sustainable marketers for the future. We know that the future is about sustainability, and so we need to use technology to help us get there, whether it's in how we design products in terms of eco-design, in terms of the packaging, whether it's pushing people that we know that have bought one product and now push them the refillable so that they can be more, we can nudge them to a more sustainable future. So these things are all about technology at different levels. You know, a service is something that the consumer is touching all the way through to how it's augmenting product design and our marketers. So with your explanation, I think it was a really good breakdown on like the different levels of, you know, uh, and types of experiences. But if you want to talk uh, maybe in the language of, of, of marketing science, legends like Ritson, Lisbonette, et cetera, how does that digital aspect maybe build on top of the fundamentals of, of marketing effectiveness? You know, I, 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 I sort of I tend to say to, to some of our more generalist marketers in the organization, you know, I love these catchphrases, you know, I say, Marketing hasn't changed, but marketers must. And it's this, it's this notion, you, you use the word, I love the word fundamentals, it's sort of my obsession, is that we need to go back to the fundamentals of marketing now and understand how they're applicable in the, in the digital age that we live in. And those fundamentals are understanding brands, understanding consumers, understanding what messaging is and how all that comes together. I, I think that the best example of looking at that is, if you think about how we approach TV 10, 15 plus years ago, there wasn't really any audience segmentation. There was a little bit. There was prime time versus potentially those people that stayed at home. I don't want to say housewives because that's very, very segmenting. But there was, there was a point where it was daytime was for housewives and, and prime time was for everybody else. And there was no return path. There was no interaction. 
So if somebody said you were doing TV and TV was the biggest part of the plan, you knew you were touching everybody with a message that they couldn't really do very much on. There was, there was no notion of direct response TV. So, so basically the way to, do a, to build TV copy to, to create an ad was very, very similar. Suddenly today, if, if I take the opposite end of the spectrum, if I, if I look at Meta or Facebook, I have to call them Facebook. I worked there before they were called Meta. I can't get my head around that. I, I remember when I was at Facebook, you know, our biggest challenge back in those days was explaining to marketers that the platform could do everything. The platform could do broad reach with one format, or it could do app installs with another format, or it could do direct response and optimize to basket size if you had the right pixel in the right place. And so suddenly, marketing today has got exceedingly difficult because you really have to be super clear on what your strategic objective is before you jump in. Because the format, the platform, can do a bunch of different things. And so to answer your question, you know, what that means is that marketers in this space of extreme complexity have to not only manage the complexity of channels, platforms, formats, but they also have to be extremely strategic now in understanding brand product challenges to be able to answer those. So one of the things that I'm, I want to uncover in our conversation is some of those myths and narratives that are constructs we're used to and kind of introduce new things. And when I was hearing you speak, you know, you were talking about maybe the traditional, you know, media media plan, right? So uh, TV, broad reach, okay. And then for maybe meta slash Facebook, it is for, you know, lower funnel, et cetera. But if I'm hearing you correctly, that's not true anymore. Any, for some platform, let's talk, let's, let's hone it to digital platforms. They can do, they can work across the funnel. And I've seen a lot of um, research and studies. So it's kind of, you have to move away from that simplistic point of view. And it's more about, being strategic, like, yes, maybe, um, you know, two platforms can achieve both things, but where's your audience, for example, and then make your decision based on that. I am I hearing you correctly? It's spot on. You expressed it better than I could. But I'll, but I'll come back to you. You know, I think the, the fun today is that TV can do lots of things too. You know, direct response TV is a, is a fun space to play in. You know, do you put a QR code on the screen or a short URL, or do you synchronize that with something that's happening on are we allowed to call it Twitter anymore? You know, so, so you know, Facebook sure has got lots of formats and lots of objectives, but TV is changing as well because of connected TV, because people are generally sitting with their phone when they're watching TV. So many things have changed and they're impacting the old media. They're not really that old anymore, as well as the new media. I alluded to maybe one criteria of that strategic decision, which is like maybe picking it based on where your audience are. Are there other kind of considerations that marketers need to think about when they're thinking about how to build their brands on these different channels. Definitely. I'm sure, I, I'm sure there are lots, but you're, you're right. You know, where the audience is is going to be critical. You know, they've got to touch the right person. But I think the type of interaction they have with the platform is also quite interesting. What the format looks like, how long it stays on screen, how much interactivity there is. We used to have lots of conversations that sort of died off these days about whether sound is on or sound is off, because that was the disruption that TikTok brought to the market. But that's a really big piece. And particularly when you talk about both strategic objectives and building brands, and those two things sort of go hand in hand, because how much real estate have you got to be able to build a brand? It's not just a name. It's not just a logo. It's much more than that. You know, it's about space. It's about time. It's about different, uh, different media, but it's also about the voices. You know, I think this is an interesting challenge with so much activity on TikTok these days, but TikTok is very much influencer advocacy based and less so about the brand voice. And so how do you balance those things out? So yes, there's a, there's a lot more to take into account than just the platform 
and and the audience. But the audience is right. You're 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 spot on. Eh? We've got to make sure we're actually talking to the right people first of all. One of the things that makes this the most effective advertising campaign in the world so effective is the use of brand purpose. Here at the Master of Advertising Effectiveness, our purpose is to improve the effectiveness of advertising so that underprivileged children can grow up on a healthier planet. To join our movement and learn more about what really makes advertising effective, head over to mae.academy. That's mae.academy. I want to touch a little bit about measurement. And you alluded a little bit to it earlier, you know, the renaissance of MMM, et cetera. How do you see measurement changing in this new, you know, very digital, complex landscape that you so eloquently um, outlined earlier? Uh, measurement is, is, is the topic. I think it's, 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 it's probably going to be the top marketing topic for the next five years as everybody starts to pick up. I think we need to roll back a little bit. I, I think what happened during COVID? COVID, what happened was there was there was an explosion of e-commerce. And so I think then there was this explosion, therefore, of performance media. You know, we really saw it. You know, first of all, it was, are you online? It was physical presence. It was distribution. And then suddenly, once that was done, it was then, okay, how do I stand out from the masses? Uh, and, and that was then this performance media, you know. I think it was Benedict Evans who said that search is the, is the new equivalent of rent. You know, it's just the base element to be there. So suddenly, big new shift online, big tiff to performance media. And as you move to performance media, well, everybody starts looking at direct last touch attribution, whatever you want to call it. And they're talking about ROI and they're talking about ROAS. And, and so this was an explosion of this sort of very, I'm sorry to say, narrow-minded view of one touch, final touch attribution, uh, not even multi-touch there. That's why I sort of emphasize that. And really, performance media became the answer to everybody's problems. But I think, you know, I make a big, broad statement, at least in our business, in businesses where brands are important, performance media is, is, is a cycle to the bottom. It is, it is really the end. You know, it's a one-to-one relationship. It's not how you build brands. It's not how you build brands over the medium term. And so, therefore, it doesn't, doesn't really help. And so, what's happened is, suddenly, as we've come out of this, there's this excitement of saying, okay, what is next? How do I start to understand that? Okay, measurement's very important, but how do I me- measure a bigger picture? And that's why there's this renaissance of MMM, because on the one hand, you've got the notion of, okay, I need to measure and ROAS and ROI on the answer, but also there's enormous amounts of data. You know, we're going through a technology revolution where suddenly data is super, super present. And one of the biggest challenges of econometrics is data management and data wrangling. So, so two things are coming together when this, this sort of, this, uh, this amazing moment where the planets are aligned. And I think that's where the hopefully the geeks and the smarter people in marketing are moving to it, saying, okay, I need to have the biggest view of what's going on. That's how I measure my success. And that's how I start to understand what the right levers are and right, the right portfolio allocation of my investment is. L'Oreal is a great brand. Um, and it's, it's no surprise that the brand invest in brand. And I did see um, one of our reporters at WARC did uh, a news report that said that in 2023, the company reported its best growth in 20 years, despite ongoing economic upheaval and this rapidly changing landscape. So how is investing in brand, particularly in the digital space, enabled that growth in Sepmina? And what are the key learnings from that journey? And the reason I thought maybe you answered my question before I answered it is because maybe is it because the measurement and the, the tracking is enabling you to have that bigger picture that gives you that confidence to invest? 
I think that's part of it, but I, but I don't want to put all the credit there. I think your, your question is bigger and it's about us as an organization. You know, you say L'Oreal, the brand. L'Oreal is the group. Uh, you know, L'Oreal Paris is one brand. L'Oreal Professional, another. There's 30, 37 brands. And we exist across five categories in beauty. We exist in every type of distribution, online, offline, department stores, grocery, 7-Eleven, everything. I, I think, so One on the one hand, our portfolio is what gives us strength. You know, we're a pure player in beauty. Unlike many other organizations that operate in beauty, we only operate in beauty. So I think our focus on beauty, our understanding of the space, our understanding of the consumer, the broad portfolio that operates at different price points, different positionings, different distribution channels. And then finally, I would say it's, you know, there's a culture in the organization of agility. Um, we have a saying, which is sees what's starting. There is a real curiosity and learning in the organization to lean into new channels, to understand things. I think we performed well through COVID. You asked me about this year, but I'm going back a little bit further because we leaned into e-commerce early and understood. Now we're leaning into other commerce channels, whether it's messaging, whether it's social commerce, whatever that means. So, so I, think, I think all of these things come together to make L'Oreal an extremely powerful organization. But I would say the secret, the secret's not measurement. The secret's the people. The people at L'Oreal tend to be extremely smart, extremely hardworking, and extremely innovative at the same time. You mentioned two things, uh, commerce and talent. I remember seeing another report that said that L'Oreal had operated 14 live commerce studios in Jakarta alone. And of course, that's indicative of the huge trend of social commerce, live streaming, retail media, et cetera, that is really taking over globally and also as well in um, APAC. Can you elaborate more on the types of marketing capabilities or new talent that brands need to address the opportunities of this landscape and also maybe speak of the to the challenges, right? You can't just hire someone and install these studios and expect, oh, there you go. You know, we're going to drive uh, drive results. Sure. So, so you've got two big questions in one there. Uh, let me let me talk about social and live, and then we'll talk about talent because those things they interconnect, but they're also they're also separate. So definitely, we, we're always you know we're always looking at what's new and what's around the corner, and new channels, new distribution methods, new buying opportunities are quite exciting. Um, I couldn't tell you how many live studios we have. I can tell you they're definitely not just in Jakarta. Uh, across most of our markets, we're looking at at live streaming, live commerce. Um, it's very prevalent in North Asia. You'll, you'll know that the work that happens on Duyin is incredible and, and the amount of time spent there is, is enormous. Uh, what I would say is interesting is that, you know, it's a balance of storytelling and the upper funnel as well as hardcore commerce at the bottom. You know, this is a this is a new channel, much like what we talked about Facebook earlier. You can do different things on the channel. You can entertain, you can educate, you can sell and different things can happen. So so that's quite exciting. I, I think... That, that, that's sort of the segue into, into the other component. You, you asked me about talent. Talent's an extremely interesting space in marketing and, and not just in this live space. I think we used to talk about eye-shaped people 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, someone who, was, who had only one skill, you know, one skill, but super, super clear. Then we evolved, I think, into T-shaped marketers. So T-shaped marketers, they've got that one very deep skill and then the bar is a bunch of different things that they understand how it fits together. And now I think we've evolved even further into M-shaped marketers. And so hopefully it's obvious that M-shape is, is it's, it's two or three specialities that might be data, it might be media, it might be content, it might be CRM, it might be brand building. And then a little bit of, of generalisms that, that bring it all together. And I think what happens, at least in my mind, is when you put all of those M's together, they kind of interlock like a honeycomb. 
And so they work in a way that you've got all these different specialists coming together to build this extremely strong, synchronized vision of the brand that comes to life across multiple different platforms. And so that still means doing these things through TV, through outdoor, through performance media, through live streaming. But it's this orchestra that plays the same tune that's in sync. And that's what's critically important. And so from a talent point of view, we need experts and generalists at the same time. And we need to make sure they know how to work together. Just to uh, lead into that a little bit, um, that kind of talent, do they exist already? You got to train that? Like, where are we? I mean, that's quite a broad generalization, but it'd be good to get a, a sense from, from you from what you're seeing on the ground. Well, if they exist, then please send them my email so I can get in touch with them right away. So if you if you think that's you and you're listening, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, I think this is, you know, I love talking to young marketers, whether they're still at school or whether they're, they're kind of in the early parts of their career. And one of the things I say is, you know, because marketing has got so complicated or that there's so many different pieces to marketing today and because it's hard to change career later in life, I tell them you need breadth early on try and do these two or three different things. Because if, if you've spent, I don't know, a year, 18 months being a search expert early on in your career, then later on when you need to weave that piece together with something else, you'll understand it. So I think, I think we have to build that. And I think that's, that's what we do to a certain extent is we try and move people around between, between functions, between expertise, so they can build that. Um, but there are some people out there as well who've got those skills and hopefully, hopefully they've got my email now and they'll reach out. You heard it here, guys. If you're looking for a job at L'Oreal and you've got those specialisms, reach out to Lex. Last few questions for you, Lex. I know we just spoke about maybe junior talent, but I want to talk about the other um, extreme, which is the C-suite, CMOs, CFOs in particular. And globally, there is that conversation about that relationship between those two giving CMOs uh, a better seat at the table. And I bring this up because you mentioned that you had actually had a background in finance and then you found yourself in, in marketing. So you're in this unique position to straddle both positions. So in the context of this conversation we were talking about where it's really complicated, making the case for investing in brand and in marketing, what lessons from your finance background has made you a better marketer to address these opportunities and challenges and maybe vice versa? You're, you're very generous to say I had a background in finance. I think I need to clarify that to start with. I've never worked in finance apart from maybe some internships, but I did do finance. I did study finance at undergrad and a little bit uh, as part of my MBA. So yes, I, I didn't have coming out of school. I wasn't, a, I guess I wasn't a marketer on paper. I think, you know, what that comes down to is, is we need to understand that marketing is art and science. Um, it's, it's not just art. And I think there are certain, probably certain groups. Uh, and I've had the luxury of working, you know, I worked almost 10 years in the agency world and, and now sort of pivoted to the client side. So I've seen both pieces. There's a lot of creativity and a lot of art in marketing. No doubt about that. Understanding the consumer, thinking about innovation, being creative. But there's more and more science in marketing. And I think, you know, to, to answer your question, what a finance background brings you is one, no fear of numbers or Excel. You know, there are some people that are still a little bit scared of Excel. But, but the, the idea that we need technology, we need data, we need to understand profitability to be good marketers. You, we need to bring science and structure to what we're doing. That's what's important. 
Um, I had a great CFO in the UK. You know, I think the first time I met him when I when I landed in London, I asked him for some for some PLs, and he said, "You're the first CMO who's ever asked me for that." And I said, "Well, that's all right. We can work, learn to work in a different way." So, it, it's it's. I think your your question is is one that everybody always talks about, which is you know the relationship in the boardroom. I don't think I've ever had that challenge because I I definitely understand the world of finance and speak the language, but I think that's that's the same for anybody. Whenever you're bridging different worlds. You know, when you're bridging agency to client, you have to learn how to speak their language. When you're bridging data science into creativity, you have to speak the right language. So I don't think that's any different between finance and marketing. I think it's more the notion that we've got to be ready for data to help us make decisions and be open to that. All right. So last two questions for me, always infamous. The first one is we talked a lot about you know best practice. What are the myths that we need to dispel? But at work, of course, we always love tangible examples. And I know you manage uh, a portfolio of many, many brands across different uh, you know, markets, etc. But if you can pick one as an illustrative case study that demonstrates what it looks like to invest in brands in the digital age in high emerging markets, what would it be? Um, one example. That's hard. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll pick one example. I think uh, so... Uh, have you heard of the brand La Roche-Posay? Yes. So La Roche-Posay in Indonesia, working with, so one of our one of our, our services, so the service is called SpotScan. It's a service that looks at your skin, looks at your acne and helps, starts to help guide you. And it can guide you in terms of the product you need and maybe the, the routine or the regime you need. Or if necessary, they have a partnership with a, with a healthcare provider, it can take you all the way to a derm. And this is really exciting because what the brand is doing, so the brand is democratizing access to dermatological technology, insight, wisdom. It's helping you without making you buy the product, helping you to figure out what the right way to go forward is. And then if necessary, it's driving you to the right service or to the right, the right healthcare professional. This is an amazing brand. This brand is already amazing because La Roche-Posay is one of those brands. It comes from a thermal spring in La Roche-Posay in France. There's always been a a spa there, but it's a medical spa. You know, it used to be where burn victims would go because these magic waters would help them and they still go there now, but also cancer survivors as well now because what's interesting is that the, the output of chemotherapy, the impact it has on your skin is very similar to burns. And so La Roche-Posay plays a very big role in, in cancer treatment at the same time. So anyway, so the, the example you asked me for is, you know, how is this bringing the brand to life? So I think there's two things there that I'm trying to talk about. They're both services. There's a physical service, okay, it's more limited, it's, it's the thermal spa, but it's bringing the brand to life, it's a real experience. But the online service, it's using technology to educate and help consumers, potentially to send them to a healthcare professional if you need that, and always building the brand at the same time. That's absolutely nothing like a TV ad 20 years ago that you couldn't interact with. And that's what's so amazing, you know, that's really where we are today, you know, building brands and communication looks so different if you wanted to. Your answer makes me think that brand building today is a lot more multidimensional, right? Speaking to that interactivity, et cetera. Is that a, maybe a right way to characterize that? De- definitely. I, I love that word multidimensional. And that's where, you know, we'll go back to, the, to these fundamentals again. You know, you've got to understand what it takes to build a brand. You've got to understand that brand building is about emotion. It's about creating memory structures. It's about distinctive assets. You've got to understand those things about brand building and then think about how you can apply them in a new context. You know, if you don't know what it takes to build a brand, when you've suddenly got to do it in 17 different places with different technology and different timing, you're never going to survive. And that's why the fundamentals are so important. You know, marketing hasn't changed. Brand building hasn't changed, but we have to change to be able to do it in a new environment. So my last question, 
which I have to ask because we were talking about tech and innovation and what is a tech and innovation conversation without the mention of AI. So put maybe on your uh, future hat or maybe it's the present hat. How do you think generative AI will impact the development of either beauty tech, building brands in the digital age? Uh, you can answer either from media strategy, audience targeting. Is it about the creative development, etc.? It's quite a open-ended and wild west, to be honest. It's, it's the obvious million-dollar question today. So it's definitely a question of today. Um, we are using AI, ML, Gen AI, whatever you want to call it. And I think we're mixing up a lot of what those things are in lots of different places. All the places that you mentioned. I'm not going to talk about what we're doing because that would be too that would be too easy and too easy for the competition. But no, I, I think. We'll talk a little bit about where the future is going. I think there are two things. I think one is that Gen AI, any sort of AI, works on large volumes of data. And data needs to, one, be present and two, be of good quality. Building quality data sets at scale is not an easy task. And so one thing I tell a lot of our marketers is, you know, is if you want great tools using AI, using machine learning that are going to give you great results, you've got to create clean data to start with. So it's the users of the technology that are also the creators of the data and they need to create clean data because it's just like we used to say garbage in, garbage out. You know, if the data's wrong, then, then the AI is not going to work. So I think that's, that's one piece. I think the second piece is that we have to remember that AI is still only using things that exist today. It is creating new mashups, the same way at McDonald's we used to create new products just with different bits of different burgers. Um, but it's not actually creating anything new. So there is a space for innovation. You can force it to create new things, but then you've got to be really good at how the tool works. And that's this new job called, called prompt engineering. That's quite an exciting space um, in terms of how do you use the tools. I don't think this is a place where everybody's going to be creating their own Gen AI, because if you create your own LLM, probably means your data is messy, because if you're spending time building the, the model, then you're not spending time creating clean data. And, and then are you really an expert prompt engineer? So Definitely lots of impacts, lots of impacts for speed, for efficiency, for innovation and creativity. But I don't think it's going to kill any jobs. And I think we're still going to need to be experts to make it work well. I'm just trying to connect the dots here. And I could be completely wrong because, again, we spoke a lot about the importance of building brand. Right. And when you build brand the right way, you get, you know, the right people, um, et cetera. And is that related to what you were saying that? In order for AI to work effectively, you need good quality data, et cetera. Is there a link there or am I, am I just pushing that a little bit too far? No, I mean, so no, I don't, I, don't, I think you're right. Let, let's, let's take a great, a good example. If you want the output of something that's AI to be on brand, you have to train it with clean data as to what is on brand to start with. The more clean data you share with it to start with, the broader the outputs will be. You give it one print ad and one TV spot that you say is great, it's not going to have a lot of opportunity. So those things are very much related. Fantastic. And on that note, thank you so much, Lex, for your insights and trying to make sense of all this complexity. And to our listeners for tuning in, thank you. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the WARC podcast. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.